from Arcadia. This is Simon, and I've got Victor here too. And today is the first episode we're doing a straight-up review. It's a little bit different from what we normally do, but we should be releasing in tandem discussions about the Changeling metaplot. Apart from naming the books that we used to inform our discussions, we thought it would be useful to also do straight-up reviews of those books. So we're hoping that we'll be able to be succinct and keep these episodes a little bit shorter than our other episodes. We're going to try. We uh, started talking about the fact that when we approached the story of Changeling, we decided to experiment with it a little bit before, and that's where Beyond the Mists came from, and one, maybe two of the fiction pieces that were going to be part of Beyond the Mists 2 that... That didn't come all the way together. It was a little too ambitious, but we used some of that recording for flavor in other episodes. And we went, well, let's go back and really actually do the meta plot, the story of Changeling. What that means is a little bit shifting. It depends on what part of the game you're talking about. So the review we're doing today to pair with that is for the very first episode of that, which is going to be the Mythic Age. And anyone who's read the books knows the mythic age as metaplot is a squishy concept. We're casting the net a little farther than we maybe will later in this series and looking for potential places where you could find hooks and inspiration, not necessarily this book is canon. With that in mind, Simon, what book are we going to be talking about today? So we're looking at Exalted, The Fair Folk, which was released in 2003. The developer was Jeffrey Grabowski. Yeah, and anyone who's listened to the whole series knows we have an episode on Graceful Wicked Masks, which was the second edition of this setting. But today we're going to be talking about the first edition book. We got a hold of it recently and thought, well, we spent all this time talking about the second edition. What did the first edition of this have to offer? So we got a hold of it, and I can honestly say that this book was a little bit more difficult for me to read than Graceful Wicked Masks. It is clearly a prequel to Changeling. The hooks are definitely there, but weirdly, as much as that prequel had been broken before the next book came out, they made a lot less sense to me, even though they were all over the page. Simon, what was your first impression of this book? The feeling I kept having reading this book was that it was written for and maybe by people who didn't like dreaming very much. They, early on, were very explicit about how the Raksha in this book are not like the Fae in that other book. Almost immediately they betrayed that mission statement, which was interesting to me. But that they felt the need to say it was telling. And I have a lot of criticisms for this book. 
when I review things, I really try to highlight the good as well as the things that were frustrating. And there's definitely a lot here, and you can sort of find kernels of, of interesting ideas. But that little sidebar about you won't find the word fairy or fay anywhere in this book because you just can't set the right tone, the word fairy has already appeared by the time you get to that sidebar. It's in one of the fiction pieces. The word fay comes up several times in the whole section on, you know, the, the earthborn, or not the earthborn, the, the jadeborn. They're not um, dwarves, by the way. They're not dwarves. They're not. They're totally dwarves. And it, it's just so weird. The book is also, and I just, there's just no way for me to sugarcoat this. It's rapey. Like, oh, yeah. It's like this... so rapey. <laughs> the, the thing that got me about this book, though, in just the, the rapey tones, uh, it's in one of the very first fiction pieces, is it just seemed unnecessary. Um, yeah, it's gratuitous. It, it, it is serve a function. And what's interesting to me is Changeling definitely has violation themes, but they're dealt with in a way where it's not the norm. It's not the standard. It's presented as bad. It's presented as something that is damaging to everyone. You know, you make an in-universe argument about, oh, well, these are the original Fae. They wouldn't care about all of that. And, okay, I don't buy in-universe arguments because at the end of the day, you're you're making thematic choices. The way it's presented in Fair Folk is just as a neutral, normal, like, fact of life. And it's, it's applied. Banal. It's banal. It's incredibly banal. It's applied to children. Like, the first time it shows up, it's applied to a child in, like, an explicit, we are going to describe touching this child and their ecstatic reaction. And I was just like, I don't, I don't need this. Like, this is unnecessary. <laughs> That's a really solid theme all the way through this book, where it deploys edginess without intent. And I think it's trying to use it as a shorthand for, like, these are very alien things. Look at how awful they behave. But it never actually acts like any of this is awful. Well, so that actually gets me into the next thing that really jumped out at me about this book. The writers wrote the most banal fairies that have ever been. Ever. And spent all their time saying, no, but really, they're totally randomly swear. It's like, look at this incredibly rigid cast system. No, but they could be anything. They're totally unpredictable. They can't do anything creative. Everything is a perfect replication of creation. Oh, but look at these, you know, glass fruits. When you're in the border marshes, you never have anything too weird. Like a spore doesn't land on a cow and germinate into a plant cow. Oh no, but look at these leaves with snakes on their ends. And some of these contradictions were within like a couple paragraphs of each other. Yeah, in the <laughs> because it, it does the standard like two column page split. Like sometimes they're right next to each other. <laughs> yeah, they really are. And it's throughout the whole book. And there there are these random aesthetic invocations of weirdness, but whenever there's a paragraph that describes, okay, no, but really, how would you run this? 
It describes everything in the most rigid, predictable ways possible. It didn't feel fairy to me at all. It certainly didn't feel the kind of wild, dynamic, Fomorian, Tuahan, sort of getting back to, like, is this usable as changeling inspiration? Like, reviewing it from that lens. The Fomorians show up here. They don't really make a lot of sense. They show up right next to, like, the Balorian Crusade, but they aren't actually tied to the Balorian Crusade. There are all of these name drops for, like, the Changeling connection. And I get that Misty Remembrance is important in this setting, but there's Misty Remembrance and then there's, no, you got everything wrong, so none of this is usable in your modern setting, which is kind of what this ended up being. The stuff I found most useful... Like, some of the system stuff was interesting. I remember specifically, like, they broke the freehold background into something a little bit less like, you own a 50% stake in this nightclub, to being more like, you have membership in a swath of, we're not calling it the dreaming, but the dreaming, and you can access any of these similarly aligned freeholds and you have a little cabin over there that's yours, which is more useful in some ways than the standard freehold power in Changeling the Dreaming. It's definitely a better story hook, but it's weird that I have to stretch that far to find it, you know? (laughs) Some of the freehold ideas are kind of useful. I feel like... Some of what they were trying to do with the noble commoner divide can be kind of interesting inspiration for the she commoner divide if you wanted to do like a deep bedlam she or go into the far dreaming or God forbid the deep dreaming and get into the you lose your humanity and become this thing that you had been, you know, a pure manifestation of that. And you can get into some of the the relationship between the nobles and the commoners, and Fair Folk certainly doesn't pull any punches on, feudalism is bad, yo, don't romanticize this, these things are monsters. I respect that, that's something I wish Changeling did more of. But even then, the write-ups are sort of like, the nobles are these weird things that I can't even call alien. They're really not alien, they are simple a better way to describe them like they have (laughs) they they have like one or two ideas and that's all they do which isn't that alien like everyone's known a five-year-old you know and then the commoners have no free will even though there's a whole write-up on making them there's character creation for commoners even though that was i I didn't understand that like why bother there's character creation for them but they have no agency literally like anchi in Shoshokaku Meyuten of the series, those are the commoners, only without the ability to actually break out, except they can become grand heroes with their lack of will or agency. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what was going on with the commoners in this book. I couldn't, like, put two sentences together next to each other from two different parts of the book about the commoners and convince myself they were talking about the same creatures. That's but, fair. like... The relationship between the nobles and the commoners and, like, seeing the sociopathic extent of it, okay, like, maybe there's something there, but I also feel like that's not that hard to just, like, roll around in your head and figure out. 
And there was an interesting little sidebar that discussed how the not-fey, the Raksha, get Gossamer, which is their secondary power source next to Essence. And it discussed how they can get it from shaping actions, which I thought was interesting because it provides a like an in-game incentive for them to be constantly like trying to force each other to behave in certain ways. On the other hand, it's not super compatible with Changeling because, you know, one of the core like nuggets in Changeling is humans are important. They're where the thing comes from. And this completely disconnects that. And I don't, as much as I find the idea intriguing, I, it's another one of those things that's like, it's good over here in this corner, but if I bring it over into my changeling corner, it might break everything. Again, I don't want to dive too, more, too far into Graceful Wicked Masks. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I remember Gossamer being the thing you had to get from humans, because humans had the power of permanence. And if you wanted to shape anything with any permanence, you needed Gossamer. That made sense to me. I'm like, cool, that's the human component of glamour. Like, that's what makes Epiphany different from, you know, just sucking on a freehold. That all makes sense. And again, it goes back to my feeling that this book doesn't really invoke prequel as well as the later text does. And again, you know, it, it speaks to that theme you talked about, about humans being important. I don't know. I just I had a I had a very difficult time sort of putting together much of anything from this book that made a lot of sense until I got to the section on the Jadeborn, which you have finished more of than I have. What was your feeling on that section overall? It was it was while I was reading this section that my idea about how the Raksha can't be creative feels more like the authors projecting their own securities on the book than it does an honest representation of what the book is saying because the jadeborn are tolkien dwarves that is almost all they are their creation myth is a direct lift of the silmarillion with some of the names changed and the motivation slightly tweaked but that's it their position in the world of Exalted is almost identical to the Tolkien dwarves, with a little bit of D&D thrown on top because there are mind flayers, but we're not going to call them mind flayers. Like everything else about this book, there are occasional nuggets that are interesting. I think these particular, we're not calling them fey, but they're fey, are a pretty decent if you changed everything and just kept the broad strokes, they'd be a really interesting sort of prequel material for the Gloams in the anime. But you have to wade through a lot of Drek. I had, I kind of read them as Gloams as well. There's some very strong in anime parallels there. But they're so shaped. I mean, they're shaped by Autocathon. I suppose there's an argument to be made that the Raksha can't be creative because they're just spun from the wild, but the Jadeborn are touched by Autocathon, and that gave them... Eh. I'm not engaged by that justification, but I think that's the reason for it. 
I liked what I remembered about the Raksha having to quest into the Unshaped to change themselves. I feel like there could have been a really evocative piece written about how the more shaped the Raksha become, the less creative they become. And then like somewhere along the road, it changes when they get close enough to humanity so that the truly wild Raksha, the ones who live right out on the edge where they almost don't have any form, are incredibly creative. And maybe the, the Raksha nobles are bad at being creative, but they have things things they can do, like questing into the unshaped to find that again, or going and feeding on humans. And there's this like tenuous, unstable, part-shaped, dysfunctional place. There could have been a really evocative description of moving through that process and what eventually drives the Raksha to go all the way into creation because they're trapped, but they don't gain any of the advantages of being trapped. Like, there's a story there that speaks to the changeling condition, that speaks to the fairy condition, the constantly trapping yourselves more in banality because there are advantages, but trying to survive as a fae, that I would have found really interesting. And I remember some of that coming up in Graceful Wicked Masks, I did not see any of that in this book. Like, I kept waiting for them to finish their thought and get there. And maybe I just, like, burned out on these sections because there were sections I just couldn't finish. And maybe I missed it. But I didn't see any of that. Did you? I skimmed really, really hard. And the only part that was sort of, kind of like that part of the Jadeborn. Their second creation myth involves a particular Jadeborn whose name was Shale, which is interesting to me because that, that was the name of a particular dwarf in Dragon Age, and these are very much Dragon Age-style dwarves. Shale is on the tail end of the great dwarven decline that is caused by a particular action of Autocathon that wasn't supposed to do that, and it's never really explained why it did that. She goes off on this massive journey into the unknown underground and eventually finds the very first dwarf who does some weird mystical thing to her, and she comes back and she reinvigorates her people with a horrific, brutal case system that saves them from going extinct. That's about the only thing that gets close to that. And... That's Only the most they're both the monomyth. <laughs> yeah, that's the most exalted thing I've ever heard. Man, they love their castes. Castes <laughs> upon castes upon castes. <laughs> it's so weird to me because, like, the Raksha castes are described as being horrible, and a caste system should be horrible. But, like, for some reason, the dwarves are supposed to be the good guys, more or less, at least in comparison to the Raksha. And their caste system is worse, there's a specific discussion about forced abortions in their society because pregnancies impair productivity. Uh... Which is another one of those, like, we're being edgy but for no fucking reason things. The dwarves <laughs> reproduce through parthenogenesis. Like, they don't even need to get pregnant. Yeah, I, I don't... That That is not a tidbit on the dwarves I got to. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know what to do with it either. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and it if they didn't, like, reproduce through parthenogenesis, cool. Like, that nugget would have some context, though it would still be kind of pointlessly edgy. But at least, like, it wouldn't just be a vestigial clump sitting in the corner going, I exist, but I don't know why. 
I feel like we could go farther into this and tread through other corners of the book, but it would sound a lot like what we've already said. Maybe it's worth highlighting at least like what the best tidbit was for using in Changeling if you are going to pick up this book or have access to it. Was there anything in here that you really went, okay, I could use that? In the storytelling chapter, there was a little bit discussing Raksha feeding styles, which was necessary for this book because up to that point, using your feeding maw was always described completely abstractly and okay, but like I don't get what that means. Like, could you draw me a picture, please? And here's that picture. It was the most changeling-like element of this book because I read it. It was distinct from the way changelings do epiphany, but you could see how it fit with that. It was definitely a lot less gentle than epiphany is, even ravaging, but it gave it enough nuance for you to be able to play a character who did these things in a way that while probably not sustainable, was still only about as harmful as, like, a vampire. I think the thing that stood out the most for me was the description of the graces and the way they work. That was what originally got me interested in the Fair Folk as any kind of changeling tie-in, is I never really liked the legacies. They're frustrating for me. And the idea of the graces, of the constructing a personality from bits of narrative, I think is an interesting idea to sort of take and dissect and figure out, okay, if I were going to do a big mythic lost one, it's an interesting idea for how to construct their personality. That said, I think of the two Exalted Fair Folk books, this one didn't nail it as well as the second one did, but this is also a much less expensive book to pick up. Graceful Wicked Masks is expensive, and I've seen Fair Folk for $10 in hardback. If, you know, you see it and you can grab it, I, I think there are some ideas you can extract from it, but it's a little bit more awkward to put that together. And I'll be honest, I just skimmed the hell out of the graces because at that point the character creation section was a little painful even in comparison to the rest of the book and i already had the idea from graceful wicked masks i can't say my experience was that much different but i dove into it to see how did they handle it was it were the pieces all still there did it make sense and the system's there and this is clearly where they first came up with it so there's some useful content there I wouldn't say it's the most useful version of that content. Let's talk a little bit about how we're going to score the books that we review. I'll go ahead and talk through the sort of system we came up with. Not all of the system will be applied to Fair Folk because it is an exalted text. Some of it will be applied a little bit differently. So the first one, the category is the system is functional. We're not really going to judge that here. We're not judging this as an exalted text. We're judging it as a source of hooks for Changeling. But when we get into later reviews of Changeling texts, we'll definitely be judging that. Cohesive with other Changeling the Dreaming products is our next category. Again, this one we're going to read a little bit differently. This is more, is it cohesive as a prequel source with good hooks that you can use for inspiration for Changeling? On a rating of 1 to 5, I've got to give this a 1. 
like all the terms show up there are, i really had to dig to find anything useful as a useful prequel source how would you rate this simon my overall feeling about this book was that at least one of the writers and maybe the developer was very interested in differentiating this from changeling the dreaming and while I don't think it stops the book from having some useful little bits, if you're trying to look for inspiration for a Changeling game or a Changeling Storyteller product, there's a lot of garbage to wade through in this book. And one is the lowest for giving something, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a one for me. Like, if you have to choose between this and Graceful Wicked Masks because, like, you're broke, just wait a couple of weeks for your next paycheck and get Graceful Wicked Masks because everything this book does, Graceful Wicked Masks does a little bit better. And I'm, and Graceful Wicked Masks has problems, but like, it's a solid step up from this book. So the next one is enjoyable reading. This is kind of just judging it as a text. Is it worth picking up to read at all? I sort of vacillate on this. I'm going to give it a 2.5. I can't quite bring myself to give it a 3. There were sections of this book, like the whole section on the Jade Board. It was actually it was a pretty okay read, as role-playing texts go. Some of the, the descriptive work in the fiction pieces wasn't bad, and then I'd get to, like, the rapey end and be like, uh, no. So, like, th there is some writing skill in here. It, most of my frustration, I think, comes out of there being a bunch of writers and they weren't all given the same mission statement and that's a little frustrating but you can read portions of it in isolation it just reads very oddly as an overall text i i thought of this one in terms of of basement values and i'm gonna pull that up real quick just to make sure i stay consistent with myself so just going forward from here this book i think is going to be fairly archetypical in the way this category is applied for me so we're just going to go through what each point is worth. The first point is correctly written English. Like, this is the bottom for me. If it gets any worse than this, I'm not even going to think about it. The next point is, is the writing comprehensible and interesting? If it's not comprehensible or it's not interesting, it's staying at one. The next point is, are there more interesting ideas than really bad ideas? If there are more really bad ideas, it's staying at a two. If the entire book is quality except for one or two things that got stuck in my crawl, that would make it a three. And then if it's basically good, that's a four. And if it's perfect, comes with a blowjob, that's a five. <laughs> so this book is a solid two. There was only one really painful typo I found that impaired my ability to understand what was going on. But I was bored and frustrated by most of this book. Yeah, I took a somewhat less systematic approach to my number than Simon did, but I can't really disagree with that. The next one is aesthetic value, which is about how is the book laid out? How does it look? How is the art? Just to kind of let people know, is it is it attractive and sort of worth picking up on that front? I would give this... I mean, for me, a one is like the worst dredges of first edition vampire, the masquerade, and a five would be the absolute like highest highs of changeling first edition, where the layout and the art was 
truly outstanding. I would give this book on that scale, a, I guess I would say a three. I'm not a huge fan of the aesthetic, but a lot of that goes back to Exalted. The layout is more consistent and clean and professional than that early vampire stuff. It's well put together. The art is in good proportion, but none of the art really grabbed me either. And the layout is not particularly sparkling. The sidebars are just boxes. It's pretty utilitarian, actually, weirdly enough. But it, it gets the job done. It's an exalted book, and like the exalted look has never really done anything for me. So I don't I don't really think my opinion is super valid here. Like it, it looks like any other exalted book to me. And the last category is just kind of cutting through all of our rambling. What is a one sentence review? Like one sentence of who would want this book. My one sentence review is if you love Exalted and you are on an intense budget, you should buy this book. That's really the person where this book is a value proposition. Yeah, I'm pretty similar. My one sentence review is you should buy this book if you're a completionist and it's on sale at a used bookstore. I think that's that's pretty accurate. So now that we have burned all our goodwill with anyone who has written for Exalted, <laughs> or at least this particular book, I can I can pretty much guarantee there is nothing else in the queue that will be quite this much of a downer on uh, the review series. <laughs> I hope that you found something useful in in this somewhat ranty review of Exalted Fair Folk. I hope that after that walk through our judgier side uh, you are still willing to join us for our next conversation on walking away from arcadia opinions and we have a podcast i'm sorry <laughs>